If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. On today's episode, we've got an interview with the author Thomas Harding. Thomas's latest book, Legacy, One Family, A Cup of Tea and the Company That Took on the World, explores the story of the family behind the iconic British brand J Lyons and its rise from a few tobacco shops in the East End of London to catering for royalty and creating a line of revolutionary tea shops. Our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans, met Thomas in London to find out more. Your book, Legacy, covers five generations of the dynasty behind iconic British brand J. Lyons. And before we get into the the vast family history that you've covered, I wonder if for our listeners that perhaps aren't familiar with with the name J. Lyons, uh, could you give us a sense of the uh, vast scope of products and um, industries that this brand was involved in? Yeah, so Jay Lyons started as a catering company where they would go to exhibitions and they would provide tea and coffee. And when they started in the 1890s, uh, there was nothing really around where you could get yourself a decent meal. Um, At the time, you could go to a a chop house or a pub or an inn and it was quite rowdy and the food wasn't really good quality. But they wanted to find a place where both men and women could eat out in public because at the time, women especially, there was nowhere safe for them to eat out in public. And that then grew to providing uh, tea, so they became one of the biggest uh, distributors and manufacturers of tea, and then bread, and then cake, and then ice cream, uh, and then they expanded uh, into uh, restaurants. They had a network of what were called tea shops, which were the largest a chain of, of tea shops in, in the country and in the world. Uh, they had what they called corner houses, which were a bit like shopping malls, but just restaurants. They'd have eight, nine, ten thousand 10,000 people in a variety of different restaurants. They had a chain of hotels. They went on to uh, uh, be the largest, according to Life magazine in the 1930s, they were the largest catering company in the world. Uh, uh, after the war, they, uh, they moved into... Uh, fast food. They created the first uh, hamburger chain. Ten years before McDonald's came to Britain, uh, 
Uh, they created something called Wimpies. They had over 1,500 of these things. Uh, uh, they bought uh, Baskin Robbins ice cream. They, they purchased Tetley. They purchased Dunkin' Donuts. So they were this very large organization. By the time of the late 60s, early 70s, uh, their turnover was equivalent to, I don't know, 20, $25 billion a year. So one of the largest uh, firms in the world. Uh, they employed... 30,000, 40,000 people. They were not just a household name. They were known for uh, prudence, for quality, for honesty, for uh, customer service, for reliability, uh, and for innovation. They had this extraordinary re reputation. So anybody of above a certain age, if you ask them about Jay Lyons, uh, they'll typically they'll become a little nostalgic. They'll have a little gleam in their eye because it really meant something, something about being British, something about uh, stiff upper lips, something about quality, about drinking tea, about survival, about sticking together, the wartime spirit, uh, and. Uh, Amazingly enough, this was my family. Mm -hmm. It would be great just to talk about your own link. Yes. So, uh, you know, when I was growing up, I knew a lot about my dad's family. Uh, we used to, you know, meet them well, at least once a month for anniversaries or religious holidays. I didn't know my mother's family at all. I had this vague idea that they had something to do with catering or something. But, you know, often in families, you, you, you tend to be one, with one parent's family, not the other. And then uh, I was walking through central London talking to my teenage daughter, or then was teenage daughter, about the family. And I mentioned that, uh, you know, they had this incredible history and she knew nothing about it. And I pointed to a couple of buildings in central London and she was like, what happened? And I'm like, actually, I don't know what happened, you know, because it doesn't exist anymore and not as it was. You know, a few of the brands still exist. And so I then decided, well, I should find out what it was all about. You know, I remember when I was maybe eight or nine going to this restaurant called The Carvery, where it was probably in the 70s, unlimited, you know, unlimited, these huge uh, plates of unlimited amounts of meat, lamb and beef and, and chicken and incredible trolley loads of desserts, of ice creams and puddings and pastries. And, uh, and I remember my grandfather saying, you know, you could eat as much as you want. And it was only later I realized that he owned the restaurant, the family owned the restaurant. And I was really intrigued to find out a, what happened to this big business, but also how did it start and what drove them? What drove this family which came over from Germany in the 1840s? Why were they so motivated to actually uh, create this enormous catering empire? And the more I looked into it, the more interesting it became. So you mentioned there um, your family's uh, arrival in Britain, and it was 1843 when Samuel came uh, to Britain. But can we talk about the, the European story first, yeah, the, the yeah. European roots and, and layman as well? Yeah, so my family, uh, my mother's family, came from what is today northwest Germany. Uh, they came from a, a town called Jever, and they moved to Rheinberg. And uh, this was a time where... Uh, there was a lot of uh, changing of, of, of territory. Um, just after the Napoleonic Wars, Napoleon had been defeated and Prussia then moved into this area. And the family uh, were at that stage um, uh, treated really badly by the Prussians. There was, I, I didn't know about this. I mean, I, I, I've written before about the Nazi period, about the period between the First and Second World War. I didn't really know about the persecutions 100 years ago uh, before that. And actually, it's been it's 200 years ago in August 1819 that were these, this wave of riots, of anti-Jewish riots, which started in Bavaria and spread up through Germany. They were called the HEP-HEP riots, H-E-P-H-E-P -E -E riots, which I, I didn't know about. And there were these dreadful uh, attacks on the Jewish community, destruction of the synagogues, uh, violence attacks. Uh, people were accused of ritual murder, this horrible medieval blood libel where the Jews were being accused of taking Christian blood and using it as part of the ceremonies, you know. You know, obviously missed and totally awful, but justifying these attacks. And my family were caught up in the middle of this. Um, and uh, Layman, who's the kind of the ancestor, who's a Hebrew teacher, um, he was really scared about what would happen. And then at the same time, the Prussian authorities were imposing these old laws where Jews had to pay for protection of the state. And then he lost his job as a Hebrew teacher. He was a bit of a polymath. He could speak many, many languages. And so 
to escape this debt, to escape the, the terror, the only way was really to flee into Netherlands. Uh, but he didn't want to land his family, his wife's family, with, with any of the trouble, so he decided to fake his own death, <laughs> which is pretty amazing. And the reason why I know this because it does sound a bit outlandish, is, is um, I tracked down the gray, this, this, the graveyard outside the town where he used to live in Rheinberg, and uh, I spoke to some historians, and the historians had lists of the graves that used to be there, because since the Nazi, during the Nazi period, uh, the Nazis destroyed a lot of the gravestones in the cemetery. There used to be about 200 gravestones, now there's about 40 left. And so there's very few remaining, but somebody had actually made a list of who had been buried there. And my ancestor, Lehman Gluckstein, was one was amongst them. He was a teacher, the date of birth, the date of death, and so on. But the problem is I knew that Lehman had actually been buried in London. You know, so you can't really be buried in two different places. <laughs> so it was, it was, you know, it was quite a, a mystery to unravel. But that was the beginning of the story. And, and that's very much part of the, that original trauma. It's very much part of the family legend, driving them from Prussia into Holland and eventually arriving in 1843 uh, in London with nothing in the east end of London in Whitechapel, which was really a very difficult place uh, to, to live. Uh, full of 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 crime and vice and and a disease. You know the the death rate was about twenty percent higher in Whitechapel than the rest of London, and that's where often the immigrants would move to to East London. And so in uh, this nineteenth century London is where Samuel finds himself, and it's tobacco that first starts to drive the family's innovations. What can you tell us about Samuel's early um, endeavours in London? So Samuel was Layman Layman's oldest son. So they sent Samuel from Holland over to to England to, as the vanguard. Often you'd see that with immigrant families, that one member of the family would be sent, a younger member, to set things up, see if it works, see if it's safe, and then the other members join, and that's exactly what happened. And Samuel uh, and his father had been involved with like a camera obscura type device in Holland, and uh, so he was very good at business, he was very good at street selling, but he'd also learnt um, or he'd observed how to make tobacco products, and he was also a smoker himself. So he thought that was an opportunity. And in mid-19th century London, the making of cigars was a really big business. Uh, Philip Morris and people like that had workshops all around London. Hundreds of mostly Jewish cigar makers had their workshops in London. So Samuel thought, oh, well, I might as well have a go at that. And so he literally just taught himself. He'd buy the tobacco, try and roll it. And this was a very difficult thing to try and do. Um, he made lots of errors. He didn't have anyone to help him. Um, he actually got quite sick at one stage, and luckily his land, landlord's daughter helped him uh, survive a fever, and then they ended up marrying. This was Anne. And together they created this very small at first, the cigar business, rolling cigars. And gradually, as Samuel's family came over from Holland, Lehman and, and his other sons and daughters, they, they created this business. Um, and they were quite successful at it. I think they used their, their street skills from Holland to learn how to sell it to London. And the more of the family involved, the more that Samuel could be involved with uh, finding new customers and building up the business. So that by about 1870, it was actually quite a thriving little business. I think an interesting point, and um, perhaps we can go into it because it's certainly something you look at in the book, is the links with slavery. Because yeah. obviously tobacco was grown, well, their, their producers at the time were in America. Yeah. Um, what can you say about that? Yeah, so at the time, almost all the tobacco coming to Britain was coming from Virginia. And as, as, as we know, you know, Virginia, the plantations, the tobacco planta plantations were cultivated mostly by, on the backs of slavery. And this was something which was very well known in Britain. You know, the uh, slavery had been abolished in Britain in the 1830s, uh, but only in Britain and the colonies, not in the United States. And so it's totally legal to be able to purchase products made on the back of slavery and important to Britain, which was true of sugar, true of cotton, but also true of tobacco. Uh, and almost exclusively of tobacco because Britain got almost all of its tobacco from Virginia. And uh, despite the knowledge that the tobacco was being produced uh, by slaves under horrendous conditions uh, in Virginia and the family, of course, would have known about this. It was all in the media. They kept doing it, uh, which is definitely something that I had struggled with when I wrote this. I had no idea that my family had any connection with 
slavery or made their fortune because that is essentially what happened on the back of slavery uh and it's something which is one of those discoveries when i was researching this like oh wow that's that's really a that's a, that's a big thing uh something i struggle with so we're in the 1870s and samuel has this thriving business his family have arrived and many of them are involved in the business and and there's this this trial in, in yeah. the 1870s that um certainly you see the the ramifications through the later generations what can you say about that so this is one of the first things i researched uh i went to the national archive and they have all the old court cases and what happened was samuel was in business was in partnership with one of his brothers and one of his brother-in-laws. And they ended up in a very public fight uh, in the highest court of the land. Uh, and what happened was that his brother and brother-in-law accused him, Samuel, of not only stealing an insurance bond, but also of being too bossy at work, of, of being too controlling, um, and of also of stealing money. And in return, uh, he said... Uh, none of that was true. He was just trying to improve the quality of the product. He had looked at the insurance bond because he wanted to check it out, um, and he had reported its loss to the police. But most of all, he accused his brother and his and 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 his well his brother-in-law of sexually abusing his own daughter. And this was all out in public, and it was witnessed actually by Samuel's son Monty, who was a teenager at the time. And for Monty, this was an enormous. Embarrassment. It was humiliating, and it was, it was, this. It actually drove him to make a very big decision, because he swore to himself this would never happen again. So the results of the court case was that the business got dissolved. Most of it went to Samuel because he invested most of the money in, and they restarted the business. You know, the last name was Gluckstein, so it became Gluckstein and Company. And Monty and his brothers and sisters helped Samuel, their father, with the business. Um, Samuel soon died afterwards. So then it was on Monty's shoulders to, to lead on the company. And then he did something which was quite extraordinary, which was he had a meeting with his brothers and brothers-in-laws. And he said, I've come up with an idea, which is that from this point onwards, in order to protect our reputation, in order to make sure that there's never again this disloyalty, in order to make sure that we're never again in court, and we have this massive embarrassment, we are going to, from this point onwards, we're going to share not only all our income, but all our assets. In other words, you know, no one gets paid unless everybody gets paid. No one gets a new asset, for example, like a horse and cart, unless everybody gets a horse and cart. No matter where you are in the business, you get paid the same. Um, and he called this this novel idea the fund. And then they had a vote. And some of the brothers and brothers-in-laws were like, well, actually, this doesn't sound like a good idea. You know, if we're making money, we want to keep the money. And also somebody else said, well, you know, if I marry somebody who's got money, I don't want to be throwing that money into the pot. But there was five others who said, yes, we're up for this. So they created, the six of them created this thing called the fund. And it really is quite an extraordinarily innovative idea uh, because it was a way of binding the family together. Uh, it was only for the men. The men um, were the ones who actually were the ones who uh, could take advantage of it. There was provisions to take care of the daughters and the wives. So if one of the one of the men died, then the widows would get that man's salary. When the women were married, they would get some large payment through a, a, a bride price or a, a trousseau. Um, and, and it was felt incredibly... Innovative and and smart in terms of bringing the family together, and that became kind of the core for what what drove the family forward. Monty certainly comes across as, a, as such a character in your yeah. in your book. And so, what can you tell us about uh, Monty's uh, innovations yeah. and also his innovation with advertising as well? Yeah. So again, we're now into like the eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties. There, the the family is really keen to get out of East London. East London is really a difficult place to live. There's a lot of murders going on around that time. You've got Jack the Ripper, and you've got. Uh, you've got a lot of uh, disease. And so he's he's like, I must get my family out of East London. And uh, he pivots. He says, okay, the tobacco business is going quite well. I'm going to start looking at catering. Because while he's been traveling around the country, this is Monty, uh, with his father Samuel, who then died, but then by himself, he had been visiting a lot of trade fairs and he had noticed that there was no enjoyable food and drink available. There was alcohol tea was too expensive, the food wasn't very good. So he went to the family and said, hey, look, 
I've got this idea that maybe we could provide the catering. Look, we can do tobacco products. Why can't we do catering? And so he then persuades them to uh, take the uh, contract for catering for one exhibition at Newcastle. And uh, some of the family members, like his brother-in-law, said, listen, we don't really think this is our thing. We don't want to taint our name. If you're going to do this, you can do this, but you can't use any other family resources and you can't use our name. So Monty was like, okay, what should I do? So then he happens to know this guy called Joe Lyons, who is not a family member. He's a distant relative of somebody who married into the family. But this guy is a bit of a character. He's a guy who can sell snow to the Eskimos. He's, he's, a, he's a showman. Um, he, he's not really good at business, but he's a good front man. And he's got this great name, Joseph Lyons or Joe Lyons. So Monty then has to track him down. He goes up to, to an exhibition, finds him at a Liverpool exhibition, persuades him to join this endeavor. And so together they create the first ever catering contract at the Newcastle exhibition. And they don't just sell cups of tea at a decent price. Uh, they create a whole show around that. They have a shooting range. They have a Hungarian orchestra. They create this enormous tent, which looks like India. And there's a whole um, shtick to the whole thing. And it's a massive success, massive success. And Monty comes back to the family and says, look, I'd like to keep doing this. And again, they say, well, if you're going to do it, do it on your own terms. And so that's what he does. And he goes around. He, he, does, uh, he provides the catering at exhibitions in Paris and in Glasgow. And then he hears about this exhibition at Olympia where this this uh, couple of Americans have come in and the name of this 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 event is called the greatest show on earth and he somehow I don't know how he does it he gets the contract it's an expensive contract this the uh, the sole contract provide the catering for the greatest show on earth for the for the year and now of course this is a very big endeavor to get millions of people millions of potential customers and so now he really does have to bring more family members in and they, I think they cater for over a million, maybe two million people over that year. We're talking about the early 19, 1890s. And again, it's a massive success. And Monty, who is one of these characters who has this incredible combination, not, not just determination and skill and management ability. He's also really good with people. And he's, and he's not too, he's not too, uh, he's not mean, he's not too um, aggressive, which is a difficult balance, I think, in business, but he gets it just about right. And so he has enormous buy-in from all of his stuff. Everybody loves him. Um, and again, it's a huge success. And then, because he's somebody who's, he, I don't think he sees any limit to his ambition. He looks at uh, these Americans, Barnum and Bailey, and says, look, you know, why can't I do that? Most people would say, look, catering's enough. That's big enough. Uh, but he looks at Barnum and Bailey, and when Barnum and Bailey decided to leave, he said, well, why, why can't we do something like this? So he goes to his family, and he proposes that they hold their own spectacle, their own exhibition. And they have some ideas, and they decide what they're going to do is, because at the time... People were really interested in the world because of the British Empire and they read about it in the newspapers, but they couldn't travel. Traveling was incredibly expensive. Only the very rich could travel. So he said, well, let's bring the world to Britain. So they, they, they rent out the Olympia, Olympia, which is a very large exhibition hall in West London, enormous, enormous conference uh, hall. And they decide to bring Venice, the city of Venice, to London. And so what they do is they, 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 they don't just kind of bring over, you know, have a, a, a few kind of people with masks and some funny medieval music. They decide to create the, the canals of Venice. They bring over hundreds of gondolas and the gondoliers, the people who can steer the gondolas. They have, they have dancers, they have singers, they create this incredible stage set. And uh, again, it's a huge success. And one of the things that they do which is very innovative, is they spend an enormous amount of money on advertising. And so uh, they had these omnibuses, which go up and down the roads with, with advertising on the side of their buses. They have hoardings, so these large uh, billboards on the side of the roads, hundreds of foot long, you know, advertising. They price the tickets really cheap, so the every everyday Joe can, can go. And again, it's a massive success. They do Venice in London, and they do Constantinople in London, and they have one success after another. And what very cleverly they've done is they're using their kind of brand to kind of self-support itself. And then Monty comes back to the family and says, look, we're quite good at doing catering. But the problem with these one-off events is, A, it's exhausting. 
but B, it kind of has to stop at some stage because where's it going to go? You know, people get tired of Venice, then they get tired of Constantinople. Okay, so we can do other places. We could do South America. We can do, you know, I don't know, the Orient. Uh, but at some stage, people get tired of it. So why don't we do something else? Why don't we use our skills and create not just one place that people can eat and drink, but a whole national network of places to eat and drink. And and as I said earlier, at that stage, they, this didn't really exist, the idea of a national network of eateries. You know, if you went, there were a couple of chains, but if you went to one restaurant, it'd be a totally different thing that you would eat at another restaurant. The prices would be different. The service would be different. The decorations would be different. The food and drink was made on the premises, so the quality was different. But his idea was, why don't we set up a chain of, of restaurants um, and then we'll produce everything but in a central location to do quality control, keep the prices down, because the whole idea was to, to provide food and drink to the working classes and the middle classes, not for the upper classes. And this was this didn't exist. The only places that existed were these incredibly uh, difficult places which were full of alcohol pubs and chop houses and inns where women certainly weren't welcome to attend and where it wasn't safe for women to attend. And so the idea was to put, and they were kind of teetotalers, so they didn't want alcohol there. So they created their first ever tea shop just off Piccadilly Circus in central London. And the idea would be to have it near the theatre district to, to attract people. At first, the fare was very light. It was sandwiches and teas and coffees, but gradually the menu grew and it became a huge success. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Monty and the family were very good at creating these brands. So they had Lion's Tea and they had Lion's Tea Shops. But now they have these waitresses called the Nippies. And they actually, it was such a big deal, the Nippies, that they trademarked the name. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Can you take us inside one of these tea shops then? And you mentioned they were welcoming to to women, but what what kind of atmosphere would there have been? Yeah, so so um, uh, Monty was helped by his sister Lena, and uh, so she was very much the one who kind of negotiated the contracts, and she was the one who helped with the decoration. And they decided again to have something which was uh, attractive. Decoration was very important to them, so. On the outside, they had it was white paint, brilliant white paint with gold lettering. And the idea was to use the name Jay Lyons and to use lettering that nobody else would steal. So if you use gold paint, nobody else is going to do that. Inside, they had kind of a opulent furniture, a white tablecloth and velvet-covered seats and chandeliers and lithographs, commissioned lithographs on the on on the walls. And then um, the women who were hired to be uh, to to work at the restaurant. Uh, uh, the waitresses, they were trained, highly trained, and they were very numerate. And so uh, at that time, uh, uh, men would be the waiters up to that stage. But uh, Elena and, and Monty said, well, let, why, well, let's use women. You know, they're highly skilled. They'll be a, uh, 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 attentive. Uh, and there's plenty of them who want to work so we can keep the wages down. And they were always very careful about money, very prudent. And this proved to be incredibly successful. And at first, these women, these waitresses, wore quite drab, brown and white uh, dress. But over the years, their attire became more um, updated and they had very attractive-looking black uh, outfits with white um, uh, collars and, and little hats. And they became in themselves a British icon and they were known as the nippies. And... Uh, it's hard to exaggerate how big of a deal these nippies were. So the family, Monty and the family, were very good at creating these 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 brands. So they had Lion's Tea and they had Lion's Tea Shops, but now they have these waitresses called the Nippies. And they actually, it was such a big deal, the Nippies, that they trademarked the name. There was a musical 
based on the nippies. Um, they had uh, competitions with the nippies. They had sports days with the nippies. They attracted the media to come to a, a, a Miss Lyons competition made up of nippies. So they, always the idea was to build up the brand of the of the business, but also to make it fun and enjoyable for, for the staff. Uh, the, the food that was offered was... As I said, quite basic at first, it was sandwiches and there was teas and coffees, but it became more sophisticated. It became pies and it became very exotic cakes and it became uh, sodas and, and those kind of things, but always non-alcoholic. And the idea was it was to be very much a safe place to, 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 to meet. And then one tea shop became two tea shops, became three tea shops. Each one was managed by one of the family members supplied by a central hub at Cadby Hall in West London where uh, they produced all the cakes and the breads. And, and, and at one stage they'd said, OK, the tea's quite popular. Let's actually start thinking about selling the tea in packets. And so they started selling tea in packets. They started selling bread. And so one thing led to another and this catering empire grew and grew and grew. And by the beginning of the 20th century, they became the suppliers of bread and tea and cakes to the royal household. They were uh, catering enormous events public events on the side, the largest banquet in Scotland. They had 10,000, uh, a, a banquet for 10,000 masons in London. I mean, they were known as the people who could, if you had a crazy idea with thousands of people you wanted catered, you'd go to Jay Lyons. They were the people to ask to help. So there are numerous other examples of the company's um, expansion within the book. Um, one I'd really love to talk about, though, is the Trocadero. Yes. Um, what can you say about, about this next idea from Monty? Yes, so this Monty's idea was uh, have about he'd, he'd had the tea shops, and the idea was can we have a place where it'd be uh, a high end place to have a restaurant, a higher place where people can meet to have entertainment? And uh, Trocadero is this building in central London, which I'd gone past all my life. And in the 80s and 90s, it was quite a nasty kind of place where there was kind of video arcades and they sold kind of quite tacky memorabilia. And it was all down to the hill and falling apart and there's something about it which was really sad whereas you know when it was built by my family it was like the center of british culture um in terms of light entertainment and uh, if you if you think of the movie cabaret of the 30s in in germany this is what it was like in at the trocadero they had light entertainment they had comedians they had dancers they had singers they had performers who could bend backwards and perform incredible agility tricks you know if you go on to if you go onto the internet and you, you go onto YouTube or you Google the Chocodero, you'll see some incredible old black and white films from Pathé News um, of what it was like there. And it was very much, I think, the jewel of the crown for the family. Uh, it wasn't just uh, a place where you could see cabarets. There was a banquet room. There was a place that um, the Masons could meet for their meetings. There was uh, restaurants. This was the place that the family members met every every week to discuss their matters. The, the men who were part of the fund met in one room and the women met in a room next door and they would discuss matters of business, matters of family. Um, it was very much a place where, uh, of the time, so George Orwell wrote about it. And if you you know, if you uh, watch some of the old movies or, or read the old books, often they'll mention either tea shops or the Trocaderos or later on what was known as the corner houses. Um, Lyons became part of the fabric of British life. There's this rapid rise and the family's, uh, central to the family's tenet is, is unity is strength. But as you just mentioned, um, women are excluded. There is an inequality there. Um, so what can you say about uh, those who felt outside of the family way or perhaps resented um, the restrictions that came hand in hand with the wealth that the fund provided. Yeah, so I think there was there was a there was always from the very beginning, and then it grew over the decades. Um, this balance between loyalty and uh, being together and benefiting from the unity of the fund and a sense of being controlled. On the one hand. Uh, there was an enormous expectation that the men would work for the company. There was an enormous expectation that uh, the, the young young men who joined the fund uh, would support what was going on generally with with the business, and and uh, and a sense of for some of them that that was too much. It was unpleasant that people were too much in your life. There was too much 
uh, attention being paid to who you married or uh, so your 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 partners for the men were and, and for the women were always chosen for you what and, and your husband or wife was chosen what was best for the family what was just best for the business and then women of course who were excluded from the fund um, increasingly felt uh, left out and so uh, by the time you get to the 1930s uh, some of the women were really cross about it. So, for example, one of them was this painter called Gluck, who uh, her real name was Hannah Gluckstein, but uh, she was, uh, you know, very much a product of the family, and she she chaffed against the control, and she was very angry that there was this really wealthy family, but she couldn't control her own money. So, you know, the, her, the money that she did receive was put into a trust, which was controlled by her father and her brother. And she found that incredibly annoying. You know, so she, when she wanted to buy a house or when she wanted to build a studio, she had to get permission for doing so. And this was a woman who was incredibly strong-willed and independent. And she's now very well known as a painter. Uh, and I think her, her paintings are extraordinary. She, we talked about earlier about the Trocadero, and one of the things that she actually painted were the artists who performed at the Trocadero, amongst other things. Uh, but she was also a very interesting character. She was a woman who used to dress up in men's clothes. She uh, she called herself Gluck, and um, she... Uh, would hang out with a really interesting, colourful crowd. And you may think that given how conservative the family was, that they would uh, reject her. But actually, that wasn't the case. Uh, interestingly, when she had a, a big exhibition of her works at the Fine Arts Society, the the family, not only did they turn up, and we know this because there's a visitor's book, uh, but they got over-involved in her life. So her mother and her girlfriend actually conspired behind her back to get the royal family to come to the event, which Gluck was really irritated about, which is typical Gluck. Um, who else would be upset the royal family is coming to your exhibition? But that's an example of how interesting a family it was, that unity really did trump everything else, but it came with its consequences. You know, you there was an impact on privacy, there was impact on control and independence. And as the years went by, as you moved through the Second World War and beyond, it's quite clear to see that there's a large section and growing section of society who really resented the over-control of the family, of the elders, of being told what to do, of being told who you could and couldn't marry, being told what and what you could do for work, of being told what you could do with your money. And I think the seeds for the problems really were sown even at, from the very beginning. And they start really with that trauma from that first court case from the 1870s where Monty saw Samuel and his brother and brother-in-law have that very public and humiliating fight. And Monty's response, which was create this very tight, very control, controlling fund, which was such a clever and, and creative solution, w contained the seeds of its own downfall towards the end. We see uh, later members of the family, so um, Isidore, who's Monty's nephew, kind of gradually takes the reins of this vast empire and eventually goes into politics. Um, can you t talk a little bit about the anti-Semitic backlash that kind of followed this family throughout the early 20th century? Yes, yeah, so one of the... So, so Isidore was my, is my great-grandfather, so my grandfather's father is Monty's nephew, as you said. And one of the things which was so interesting when I was writing this book, Legacy, is seeing how uh, the anti-Semitism that drove the family from Prussia... Uh, in the 18, early 19th century, 1820s, 1840s, that anti-Semitism really followed them or they moved into, they, they, it was everywhere they went. I should probably a better way of saying it. And, and so, for example, I had no idea it was a total shock to me that when, you know, when their family was in East London and Whitechapel, that it was the Jews who were blamed for the Jack the Ripper murders. I had no idea about that. And very similar kind of tr anti-Semitic tropes were being used, as you were seeing back in Prussia during the ritual murders. Uh, during the First World War, uh, the Germans and the Jews, there were massive anti-German, anti-Jew protests in Britain. Uh, the first anti-immigrant legislation laws in Britain uh, which was in 1905, was in direct response to the massive Jewish immigration from Eastern Europe, particularly Russia, at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. Uh, that was the, it was called the Aliens Act, but everybody knew it was about the Jews who came to England. Um, so by the time that Isidore, my great-grandfather, decided that he wanted to get into politics, uh, 
anti-Semitism was a really big issue and immigrants were, uh, and, and the populist response, uh, the anti-immigrant right-wing response to immigrants and Jews particularly was a really big issue for the family. Uh, and so he decided to go into politics and uh, use politics to actually deal with those issues. And what we see is in the uh, beginning of the 1930s, the rise of a very powerful uh, anti-Semitic, anti-immigrant group called uh, British Union of Fascists, led by this guy called Oswald Mosley. And a lot of this history is very new to me. And I was, I was, because I'd studied and done a lot of research about national socialism in Germany and the rise of and Hitler and, and the right wing in Germany. And so this corresponding rise of anti-Semitism and the right wing in Britain was really surprising to me. And, and of course, there are links between the two things. Uh, uh, Mosley met with Hitler, he met with Mussolini, he was inspired by. And uh, his, his fascists, they dressed up in these black clothes and they, in many ways they mimicked what was going on in Italy and Germany and across Europe at the time. And my great-grandfather, Isidore Salmon, at the time he was chairman of Jay Lyons and he was a prominent politician. And he became uh, one of the targets of the British Union of Fascists because he was in the in the public domain, he was in the newspapers. And uh, I was. this was really quite shocking to me to see this actually uh, so close. And in 1934, uh, Oswald Mosley, his his movement was growing very rapidly, partly because he had the support of Viscount Rothermere, who was the publisher for two of the largest newspapers, Daily Mail and Daily Mirror. And he'd come out in public um, in support of the fascists. Um, and uh, again, that was I, I, I kind of was vaguely familiar with that, but I didn't really know what was going on. And then something happened which was really interesting. So... Uh, Jay Lyons, which was run with the chairman with my great-grandfather Isidore, was one of the biggest advertisers for the Daily Mail. At one stage, they took out 25% of the newspaper. Imagine that. A quarter of the newspaper was Jay Lyons' advertising. Mean, there was such... Their account was massive. You can imagine the, the lunches and the kind of how they were courted for that, for that advertising spend. And um, there was a, a very nasty... Um, rally at Olympia, just opposite um, the Jay Lyons uh, headquarters in Cadbury Hall in Hammersmith. So the uh, fighting between the fascists and the anti-fascists was happening in the streets between these two buildings. And Isidore watched it from, from Cadbury Hall. It was very dangerous, very scary. And, and uh, Oswald Mosley actually came in for a lot of criticism in the media. It was really the, a, bit of a, a bit of a turning point where people began to see him as a threat to democracy. And Isidore thought of this as his opportunity. So he went to Viscount Rothermere, the publisher of the Daily Mail and Daily Mirror, and said, look, if you continue to support Rothermere, uh, if you continue to support Oswald Mosley, I'm going to withdraw my advertising spend. Interestingly enough, you know, when I first heard that story, I was like, maybe that's, I mean, maybe there's some tooth to it. I don't know, you know, but then I started researching it and, and one source after another confirmed that this was the moment where Rothermere withdrew his support. So I heard it from Oswald Mosley, I heard it from Lord Hawhaw, I heard it from people who worked um, for the Daily Mail. Um, uh, and, and, and so it's, it's pretty clear that this is exactly what happened. I mean, by the way, no one talks about this in history. This is, for me, this was totally new. And, and, and as a result of this interve intervention, because uh, my great-grandfather said to Rothermere, you'll have no more of our money, because he was willing to put his head above the parapet, because don't forget up to that stage, it would have been quite scary for him to have done that. So he's not just saying, I'm going to pull my money out. He's saying, I'm willing to put my business at risk because there's a reason why they spent that money. You know, Rothermere could have just laughed in his face and uh, he wouldn't have been able to spend money there anymore. He would have had a massive impact on his business. Um, and uh, he was also putting himself out as a Jewish businessman by confronting Rothermere in that moment. So it was, it was, and this is a family who want to be more British than British, who want to be part of the British establishment. So coming out and saying, I am a British business leader, I'm saying this is wrong. I'm saying you need to do something about it. By standing up and being counted, it was, I think, incredibly courageous of him. And it also had some leverage because Rothermere from that point on with, totally withdrew his support of Oswald Mosley. And you can see very clearly a drop-off of support of the British Union of Fascists from that point on. 
So, you know, that is a bit of a, uh, for me, that was a, a, quite a moment realizing that the family had that role to play. Uh, you know, so on the one hand, you know, in the balance, you know, when you're trying to judge, did my family have a good impact on history? Did it have a bad impact? You know, there are some things where I would say that's probably in the, pos- that's definitely in the positive column, you know, introducing uh, fast food to Britain and promoting tobacco use and building a business on, on, on the sl- backs of slaves obviously is on the negative side. And it's quite interesting as going along seeing, you know, trying to weigh the balance between, you know, was that a good thing? Or was that a bad thing? You've already mentioned the Americanization. More Britons were becoming enamored with American culture. Um, they started a line in ice cream. Um, and then there was decline. What can you say about what happened there? So so, so the business was huge in the 50s and 60s. And um, by huge, I mean, you know, the, they, they had a guy employed permanently who helped the family members get through Heathrow Airport. They had the sole catering contract for Heathrow Airport. They did all the catering from Wimbledon. They did the royal family garden parties. Um, I mean, they, they were... They had an enormously positive reputation. They were one of these companies who seemed to do no wrong. And in the late 60s, two things seems to happen. And this happened to be exactly the time that my grandfather, Sam Salmon, was the chairman. Two things seemed to happen at the same time. One was they didn't seem to have the, the management skill to be able to run such a large company. I mean, this company was enormous. It was a multinational conglomerate. And my grandfather, he'd learned how to be a caterer by being in the kitchens of the Trocadero, working in the kitchens. Uh, he'd never gone to business school. He'd never, um, he'd never learned, you know, uh, sophisticated accounting methods. Um, he'd never worked for another company and learned how other things could be done. And that was true of all his relatives. And he became chairman because it was his turn. It was purely done on a rotation. Whoever was the oldest became chairman. And, of course, it was always chairmen. There was no chairwomen. Um, women in the family had no exe- had no role in the business and there was no female, despite uh, Monty earlier on saying there will be a time when there'll be a female director. There never was a female director. And uh, But Sam was ill-equipped to run this business. He's a lovely man, very intelligent, but he was ill-equipped. So there was, a, there was a structural problem in the business. I don't think that's what caused the downfall. I mean, I think maybe they would have slowly declined, but they would have been, they would have kept their key brands. They may have had to trim their sales. They may have had to sold off a few products, but they would have kept the hotels. They had this whole chain of hotels. They would have kept the key brands. What really did them in was a, the new generation came in and they said, we want to modernize everything. We want to bring in new talent, which is all great. But then one of uh, my grandfather's cousins, Neil, said, and the only way to compete in this modern world is if we're the biggest. And he was totally enamored with this American idea of what they called conglomeratization, which is where you basically you, you build the business beyond your core products. So if they're in the catering business, but suddenly they might go into transport, they might go into insurance. And and that's what they that's what he did. And so he went on a buying spree. At first, it was he bought related companies like a meat packing company in Belgium or a food company from France or something like that. Um, but then they went much further afield and they they bought Tetley Tea bags or Tetley Tea, which is a huge company. They bought Baskin Robbins, the largest ice cream company in America in the world. They bought Dunkin' Donuts. They went on this massive buying spree. And again, that may have been okay. The problem was is they didn't use their their own money to do it. They borrowed money on the foreign exchange. And this happened to be um, in the 1970s at a time when uh, the industrial uh, landscape was collapsing. And there was, you know, great great strife uh, uh, in, in, with labor and with the miners and steel workers and so on. And the pound collapsed in the 70s and they had borrowed money on these international exchanges. And suddenly they were bankrupt almost overnight. And it was an extraordinarily fast decline. And uh, Neil had to go to his family members in the fund and said, I'm sorry, you know, we're going to have to sell the business basically for nothing. At first they sold all the hotels um, at a tenth what became obviously a tenth of their value. And, and then later on, they, 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 sold, they had to sell the business to another company uh, for, for a song. They, the family effectively got nothing. They, had to, they gave up control and they basically got no money for it. So it was an extraordinary ending for, so this is like 1978, 1979, an extraordinarily fast decline. And then everybody's, and then, then the tea shops were closed down and, and suddenly the 
the brand disappeared. And people were like, where did it go? You know, it's, it's, it's like this vanishing act. So this story, this dynasty, spans huge changes in British history, uh, in European, well, in global history. Um, where do you think that the legacy sits within British history now? Is it, in, is it nostalgia? Is it innovation? What do, what do you think? So I think there's a few things. I think the, the family's legacy... Uh, and obviously I'm interested in that because that's the name of the book. You know, wh- what is the legacy for the family? What's the legacy for the country and for the world? One of the legacies, I think, is about, for Britain, it's about immigration. It's about how, one of the things that we, we and this really surprised me, there's very little written, there's very little myth, there's very little legend about immigrants in this country. You know, in America, you have the American dream, you have the melting pot, so on. In Britain, you have rags to riches. You have Dick Whittington becoming mayor. You have Arthur, you know, this peasant taking a sword out of a stone becoming king. But you don't really have any celebration of immigrants, even though, I mean, particularly modern Britain is built on immigrants, the skills, the hard work, the determination. So I think one of the things that this family does is introduce that legacy, which is the role that immigrants have played in building Britain. Uh, I mean, I think the Salmons and the Glucksteins, the name of the family, they were, were particularly innovative. I think they were particularly hardworking and they, they, were, dr- they were driven to improve themselves. Uh, but they're not the only family who did that. And I think they are symptomatic of a trend which is still going on of people coming to this country who want to better themselves. They want to take advantage of the liberties of the country has to offer freedom, uh, democracy, economic opportunity. Um, and that's one of the things that I wanted to talk about. Uh, I think also the Samuels and Glucksteins are, are particularly interesting in terms of their ability to uh, come up with products that people don't even know that they want to have. It's one of Monty's things he always thought that they should do. And they always seem to be one step ahead. Um, and, you know, for them, their reputation and their idea of prudence and quality um, and uh, sophistication, and these were very important things. And they they wanted to bring products that people normally didn't have access to. So, you know, they weren't providing restaurants for the rich and the famous. They really wanted to democratize food. They wanted to provide luxuries that people wouldn't otherwise have access to. They wanted to provide those access to. And I think that's a really interesting legacy. And then for me personally, you know, I, I, I didn't know this side of the family at all. And so I'm really inspired by not just their can-do attitude, their, their ability to be incredibly ambitious and then to drive towards it, but the idea of family and unity, um, uh, of, of creating a space where, you know, you support each other, I think is incredibly inspirational. That was Thomas Harding. His book, Legacy, One Family, A Cup of Tea and the Company That Took on the World, is out now, published by William Hyman. For plenty more podcasts and history content, visit our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in again on Thursday when Andrew Loney will be discussing Lord Mountbatten.